Good morning. Our second Sunday of the month sermon series through Jeremiah uh, brings us today to the last chapter. After uh, decades of marching through Jeremiah, we are finally in the last chapter. And interestingly, we're uh, in a a recap mode here that uh, we're going back and, and picking up details Uh, the general sketch of which we've already had of Jerusalem's fall, and we'll talk about uh, why it is that uh, the book has been laid out like that. And let's just pray that God will will help us. Lord God, we ask now your uh, blessing on your people, that you have given us listening ears, but we know, Lord, that uh, listening ears can grow dull. And we pray, therefore, that you would open our ears to receive instruction. We know, Lord, that uh, one of the signs that we are hearing your word is uh, the pain of conviction. We pray, therefore, that we would invite this conviction not for the pain itself, which is unpleasant, but knowing that you chasten every son whom you receive. And therefore, we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Where judgment begins, and maybe you recognize a, a phrase from First Peter there, the judgment begins with the house of God. And so that's where Jeremiah comes back. He has uh, dealt with the uh, judgment of God upon other nations, and now he's going to come back once more and say, but this is, this is where it starts. This is where God always starts when he does works of judgment. The book as a whole of Jeremiah is about Jerusalem's fall. Again, God judges all nations, but Jeremiah is in the Bible mainly to warn God's people that he is an impartial judge. Look at 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So he's talking to Christians, isn't he? And he's saying, you Christians, God judges you without partiality. Yes, he sees you in Christ, but then he sees what you're doing in Christ's name. And he is going to judge. Was that really in Christ's name? So Christianity is not just a cover-up. You know, Paul speaks of the, the cloak that we can uh, put on with which we bite and devour one another, like, well, God's grace covers everything. So, uh, But we read that God is an impartial judge. We will stand before him, even cleansed with the blood of Christ, to uh, be evaluated according to how we walked before the Lord Christ. So the book ends with a recap of God's judgment on Jerusalem. And the uh, first verse of chapter 52 says, Zedekiah is a son of 21 years in his reigning. This is the uh, literal standard version uh, mainly with some modifications. And he, Zedekiah, reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And the name of his mother is Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. There's uh, three different uh, Jeremiah's in the book of Jeremiah. So this is a different one, obviously. And he undertakes what is wrong in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim undertakes. 
his uh, brother before him. For on the basis of the anger of Yahweh, that anger is present in Jerusalem. Or, and here, um, the uh, grammar is a bit difficult. The uh, um, anger is uh, a feminine, I mean, is a masculine word. Yahweh is a masculine word, but the it is is in the feminine. So, you know, there doesn't always have to be a matching up, but you do, you know, usually look for it. So, um, either on the basis of the anger of Yahweh, that anger is present in Jerusalem, or you could even say he, God, is in Jerusalem and Judah until he has cast them from before his face. So God's anger brings him into the midst of Jerusalem, and he says, here I sit until y'all are gone. And Zedekiah rebels against the king of Babylon. So again, chapters 1 through 38, all prophecies of Jerusalem's fall. Chapter 39, Jerusalem falls. And then we have, as we're going to read about today, uh, just some poor people left in the land. And uh, they come to Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah, pray to, pray to God for us and, and tell us you know, what he wants us to do. And, and he, we'll do anything he says, good, you know, good or bad, whether it sounds good to us or bad to us. I mean, they, they had the perfect request uh, for a prayer. Jeremiah goes, 10 days later, comes back, says, well, God says, don't, you know, stay here, don't go to Egypt. And it's the very next thing out of their mouth, oh, no, no, we're, we're going to go by what we say. So they have no intention of doing what God said, even though they framed it so beautifully. Uh, their, their hard intention, in their mind, they're like, we'll just get God to confirm for us what we know is right, and that's going down to Egypt. No way we could stay here. You know, with the, the trouble that got uh, brewed up after uh, they were left there, they thought uh, the Babylonians will certainly come in and, and take care of us in a you know, judgment way. So, yes, th- then we're in the last portion of the book, prophecies against Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Elam. And now we've spent a long time, chapters 50 and 51, long chapters on the judgment against Babylon. And we've seen how the concept of Babylon ties the whole Bible together, all the way from Genesis 11. Same exact word, Bavel, for Babylon. Uh, It's it's the exact same Hebrew word, Bavel, in uh, Jeremiah. But then Revelation 17 and 18 are where we really see that, ah, okay, this this is a biblical theme. It wasn't just uh, the Tower of Babel in Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah. Babylon is an ongoing spirit and influence in all generations. And so that's what we we finished last time was chapters 50 and 51. And so now, again, a recap of Jerusalem's fall. And um, in our outline, I've been including this with the third section of the prophecies against other nations. Well, this obviously is not another nation. Uh, if we keep chapter 52 in this section, we recognize that as, as a recap and epilogue of Jerusalem's fall. Again, for clarity, I separated it uh, in the, the outline that you just saw. I went chapter 46 through 51 and then made 52 uh, separate. So this chapter is God's way of saying that he wasn't finished with Israel. 
Now that may may seem like, well, what? I mean, it's talking about them. They're burned down. They're kicked out. I mean, boy, it certainly sounds like he's finished with them. But their uh, fate in captivity was still relevant because they would return. And where's the book that tells us that? It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one that says, 70 years, you'll be in Babylon. But then you will come back after that. And he would continue his covenant dealings with them. Look at uh, Jeremiah 52 uh, verse 31. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 25th day of the month, that Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him, gave him a more prominent seat than uh, those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there were, was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. So the book ends on a favorable note. God's favor, we can see God's favor returning to his people because his favor returns uh, to this one uh, king. And a rather short-lived king at that. Um, So, yeah, that's what God is showing us there. The hint of God returning his favor on his people. Now, Jeremiah 52 is an interesting chapter. It's pretty much, if you go back and read 2 Kings 24, starting with verse 18, and go all the way to the end of 2 Kings, all through chapter 25, you're going to see pretty much the same story, much of it word for word. Except the Gedaliah part which is in 2 Kings, is included in Jeremiah 41, uh, 1 through 3. And uh, by the way, this uh, makes some of the old rabbis thought that uh, Jeremiah not only wrote Jeremiah, but also uh, wrote second, or the Kings, uh, First and Second Kings. And then Jeremiah 52, 28 through 30 has deportation counts, numbers, uh, that, and that's not included in the second king's record. So those are the major differences. And uh, 52.6 has some additional data as well. Kids speak. Kids, we are finally in the last chapter of the longest book in the Bible. And what book are we in? Jeremiah. Right. I always used to say Psalms was the longest book in the Bible. It takes up the most space, but the most words is actually the book of Jeremiah. The downfall of Judah and Jerusalem is here counted from its last king, Zedekiah. Uh, Again, he was not the cause of the downfall. We've read that Manasseh was really the cause of the downfall from 2 Kings 21, 11, and 12. Zedekiah would be their last legitimate king until Messiah. Now, they would have, of course, kings ruling over them, but not Jewish kings. And I'm not counting Herod, uh, the Herods, uh, because the Romans put them in charge over the Jews. Zedekiah means uh, righteousness of Yah. And he was renamed by Nebuchadnezzar from his original name, Mataniah, which is gift of Yahweh. So there's some significance there. Nebuchadnezzar knew, as his captain Nebuzaradan did, that Yahweh had brought this calamity on Yahweh's people. They knew that. The Babylonians knew, your God is Yahweh. Yahweh's doing this to you. Go, go back to uh, chapter 40. 
Jeremiah 40. And you can see there the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, let him go from Ramah. Uh, and the, verse 2, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, Yahweh your God has pronounced this doom on you, uh, doom on this place. Now Yahweh has brought it and he has done it just as he said. Notice he doesn't even say just as you said, Jeremiah. I mean, he's accepting that Yahweh is a real God. Now, in his book, probably, he's thinking, yeah, but of course, our gods are even greater uh, because, you know, our gods have allowed us to conquer you and your God. But we realize that, you know, your God maybe is up there consorting with our gods. And so they agreed together to do what Yahweh said and to judge you. So the Babylonians knew this. They knew that God had called this judgment upon Israel. And so uh, he, therefore saw Yahweh's righteousness, Zedekiah, Yahweh's righteousness prevailing, and that Zedekiah was not, according to his previous name, Matani, he was not a gift of Yahweh. If he was, he wouldn't have rebelled against the king of Babylon and brought this judgment. Good Josiah was Zedekiah's dad. Zedekiah is listed under his mother's name here, you notice. And probably, mostly because... uh, Josiah had other wives, and for instance, his brother that was king before him was from another wife. Zedekiah acted the same as Jehoiakim, his half-brother, in doing wrong before God. We did feel a little sorry for Zedekiah, if you remember, way back in uh, chapter 38, because you're, you know, reading somebody that sounds like he's nervous and anxious and, you know, doesn't, obviously doesn't want to be killed and want to be responsible for everybody else being killed. And so he secretly calls Jeremiah and says, you know, give me, give me some words here. And Jeremiah says, look, and this is amazing. That at this late date, Jeremiah still tells him, if you will just surrender to the king of Babylon, that will be your way of agreeing that our people deserve judgment. And your whole, you'll be spared, your family will be spared, and the city won't be burned. At that late date, they still did not have to have a burned down city and a burned down temple. That was God's offer at that late date. And, but he could not uh, go against all of his counselors and princes. And so the next chapter is Jer- uh, Jerusalem's fall. Jer- so Zedekiah was what in Jeremiah 24, 8, God likened him to a, a bad fig, a basket of bad figs. You know, what, what are you going to do with that? Yuck. God's anger is always presented as a moral good in scriptures. Without embarrassment. You see the anger of God in these, in these opening verses. On the basis of the anger of Yahweh. The only way to acquire this perspective for, for you and me to uh, go along, you know, to agree with the Bible in this, is to leave judgment in God's hands first. You know, God's not saying, hey, you know, come help me execute anger against people. No, he's saying, I, I have the anger against them. And know that it will be fair. His anger will be fair as fair can be. He's not overly angry. He's just as angry as he needs to be considering the situation, considering the sin. Kids speak. Kids, when you and I get mad, are we doing right 
Eh, hardly ever. You know, it's hard to remember a time when, when we were angry, where we, we were actually just angry at sin and nothing else. You know, maybe somebody sinned, but we usually get personally angry, don't we? But when God gets mad, is he being selfish like us? No, he's not thinking about, oh, gee whiz, that hurt my feelings. He only gets angry at sin. That's who he is. It's only sin that he's angry at. So we need to learn to be like that. Jesus was like that, of course. Um, And so we have his example, like overturning the money uh, changers and things like that. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. We see him weeping in chapter 9, verse 1. My eyes are fountains of tears. So he wasn't happy about God's judgments. God, you know, doesn't uh, tell us that we're, you know, supposed to take them lightly. But Jeremiah ultimately conceded that God's judgments were just. He could see the princes and the people responding real time to God's messages. I mean, he's giving all of these words and he's seeing how they respond, you know, how he um, had his uh, had prophecies read and uh, Je- Jehoiah uh, Kim uh, cut him up, took a, took a knife and cut up the, the prophecies. And so Jeremiah had to be rewritten with uh, extra. So it's as long as it is today because the, uh, some, one of the original copies was uh, chopped up. Jeremiah knew that their response was on them. How they responded to them was on them. It hurt him, but he helped them all that he could. Jeremiah helps us to size up our own feelings about God's judgment. We could look at him and say, you know, he was told to tell them, Jerusalem's going to fall. Here's what you need to do about it. You know, you are going to be kicked out of the land. You have to be 70 years because there's 70 years worth of land Sabbaths that had to be repaid. That's going to happen. But now is it going to be the worst case scenario or can you make it lighter? And they didn't even make it lighter. Once evil was lodged in Jerusalem, God's anger lodged alongside it, or as we said, maybe uh, just he himself lodged alongside it until the people were expelled. So why would Zedekiah be dumb enough to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? Jerusalem was pretty defensible, you know, and and from the times that Nebuchadnezzar came and and left and had partial deportations, they probably spent all their time... uh, reinforcing the walls, etc. Uh, we know from our study of the life of David that uh, the city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem, was very defensible, where they laughed at David, you know, said, <laughs> you know, we could have just blind people sit up here on the wall and, and repel you if you try to get in here. All right, Jeremiah 52, 4. And it comes to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come, he and all his force, against Jerusalem. And they encamp against it and build against it a fortification all around. And the city comes into siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Again, you know, when uh, they weren't being sieged, they thought, well, you know, we've got water. We, we've got water running under the city that we can go get to and that they can't take away. And so we should be able to grow food. It sounded good, but once they were encircled by the Babylonian army, it, you know, it doesn't take much to make that not work. You know, just because you have water doesn't mean your you know, crops are going to grow in, in the city. 
It mentions the tenth month here. Uh, that fast is mentioned in Zechariah eight nineteen, and was apparently a, a fast commemorating the initiation of this siege. They uh, remembered it year by year. The first two fasts mentioned in Zechariah eight nineteen were apparently for Jerusalem's fall and then the temple's fall. They, so they had three different fasts associated with the Babylonian invasion. The seventh month fast was probably just the Day of Atonement. That's when the, the Day of Atonement was. Kids speak. Kids, Jerusalem was built on a mountain, and it had strong walls. Nebuchadnezzar brought the best army in the world, and they couldn't get into Jerusalem. But why did the Jews in Jerusalem have to give up? Because they ran out of food. They ran out of food. Yeah, they couldn't send out and have people bring them food because they had the Babylonians all around the city. So for Neb to bring all of his army, it says, to Jerusalem shows the great defensive situation Jerusalem was in, including food. I mean, to be able to last for 18 months, that's quite an accomplishment against an all-out siege. Jeremiah 52, 6. In the fourth month, on the ninth of the month, when the famine is severe in the city and there has been no bread for the people of the land. So again, whatever they had planned for perpetuating their food supply didn't, didn't work. People of the land, probably the farmers, you know, the farmers that they brought into the city, hey, keep making crops for us. They couldn't do it anymore. We saw the severity of the famine prophesied in Jeremiah 19.9. Which, eh, you know, if, got, if you have a sensitive streak, cover your ears. But uh, they ate their children. They ate their children. That's how bad this, the, the famine was. And, but it was prophesied in Leviticus 26, 29. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, 53 through 57, that's an elongated description of, you know, the delicate women, the women that wore all the good fashions and everything. And yet, you know, they would eat their own children. It was lamented in Lamentations 2.20 and 4.10. Those two verses speak about them eating their own children as well. So, yeah. You don't know who you are or who you can be until you're hungry. It's a basic of our existence. You get down to a, a level of yourself that you wouldn't have otherwise known. Which, by the way, I would suggest is one reason why Jesus commands us to fast. To become partially acquainted with our true weak self. Why do I need to know that? Well... What can the continuously fed truly know of dependence on God? Until you feel it, you haven't felt it. It's just words. Oh, yeah, I depend on God. Yeah, thank you, God, for our daily bread. But fasting helps you to actually feel it. How uh, attached I am to the need for food and therefore dependent on God. Jeremiah 52, 7. Then the city is broken up and all the men of war flee and go forth from the city by night. The way of the gate between the two walls that is by the king's garden and the Chaldeans are by the city all around and they go the way of the plain. So the natural reading of this is not what I had always thought. The natural reading is, is that the Jews broke through the wall from the inside. Because if, if it had been the Babylonians that broke in from the outside, nobody would have been able to escape, right? 
they would have been right there with their forces and they would have broken in and that would have been it. So the breaking through, and, and when you read it, the city is broken up. It's, it's not saying who did it. And so you, you know, for us in English at least, reading between the lines and saying, oh, so that, you know, they're the ones who did it. They did it by night. Uh, they probably planned it over uh, some period of time. Uh, the Jews knew where to undo their defensive seal to best escape. It's described as a double wall defense by the king's garden. It was either the easiest place to unblock or the best place to break out undetected or both. Kids speak. Kids, the Jewish army knew they had to get out of Jerusalem to get food. They were out of food. So they broke through their own wall at night and sneaked through all the Babylonians around Jerusalem and they ran away as far as they could. Again, the city was encircled, but of course from their walls they could say, okay, here's where all their encampments are and figure out over a period of of days, if not weeks, you know, this will be the best place to break out and, you know, that'll be the place we'll remember to make make our way down the mountain to that place and we should be able to sneak through. It was a pretty bold move, really, considering, you know, uh, how hungry they were, etc. And they headed east toward the Jordan River, the Jordan River Plains. The soldiers, uh, the Jewish soldiers had enough organization among themselves to pull this off. But, you know, once they got past the Babylonian lines, it might have been, you know, every man for himself. They might not have stayed with Zedekiah, because we read verse 8. And the forces of the Chaldeans pursue after the king and overtake Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his battalion has been scattered from him. So we don't know if when the battalion sees the Chaldeans on the horizon that then they scatter, or if they had already been scattered. So that means he made it about 20 miles to the northeast. And we don't know how many of his soldiers escaped, but Zedekiah did not escape. So verse 9, And they capture the king and bring him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he speaks judgments with him. And the king of Babylon kills the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And likewise he killed all the officials of Judah in Riblah. And he has blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, and he yokes him in irons. And the king of Babylon brings him to Babylon and gives him into the house of requital to the day of his death. There's the story of Zedekiah. So Riblah, about 200 miles north of Jerusalem, apparently the official uh, judicial seat for the region, for the Babylonians, partway back to Babylon. You would go north and then start heading back uh, um, southeast. And it is interesting, isn't it, to read of earthly king's judgments. We understand the right of judgment that is part of the right of conquest. Nebuchadnezzar had dealings with men based on his own sovereignty. They had defied him. There were consequences. We can read that and understand it. Kids speak. Kids, the Babylonians caught the king of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, who had gotten away. They killed all of his children, and and they were probably mostly grown children, and they put out Zedekiah's eyes. They took him to prison where he stayed the rest of his life. God had given Zedekiah a way for his family to live and for Jerusalem not to be burned, but he didn't listen. So sad. 
So we read about um, earthly kings, but God as king, we give him less latitude for judgment. We expect God to act based on our interests rather than his own. And his own interests are just simple justice. This shows man's degree of unreasoning animosity towards God. That we could read Nebuchadnezzar and say, well, after all, he did win the war. But, you know, we read about God and we, what's he doing throwing people in the lake of fire? Our personal sovereign streaks allow for humans what we deny to God. And again, this is fixed in us from our depths. The last thing Zedekiah saw was his sons killed. No heirs, no hope. Zedekiah was in Nebuchadnezzar's power from then on which is a more effective uh, more effective in a way than simple execution testifying of Nebuchadnezzar's ongoing dominance you know he's in my power he's in my prison he's not in power he's at is not in power Jeremiah 52:12 and in the 5th month on the 10th of the month it's the 19th year of king Zedekiah king of Babylon Nebuzaradan chief of the executioners has come He has stood before the king of Babylon in Jerusalem, and he burns the house of Yahweh and the house of the king and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he has burned with fire. And all the forces of the Chaldeans that are with the chief of the executioners have broken down all the walls of Jerusalem. So again, this rebellious and troublesome people were to be left with nothing with which to start over the way they had been before. We met Nebuzaradan back in chapter 39. He treated Jeremiah well in Nebuchadnezzar's name. He said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar told Nebuzaradan, do whatever Jeremiah tells you. If Jeremiah, you know, wants a house built and to live in it, that's what he gets to do. Which means that he had heard from the people that defected uh, from from Jerusalem that, yeah, we've got a prophet who's telling us that you're going to win. And so, you know, so they knew. They already knew Jeremiah's message. And so that uh, he was favorable towards uh, Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Kids speak. What's worse, having your house burn or for you to burn forever in the lake of fire? Well, duh, yeah, worse for me to burn forever in the lake of fire. How do we not go to the lake of fire? We say, Jesus, I sinned. I deserve to die. Thank you for dying in my place. Write me in your book. We read about a book of life. Jesus, write me into that book. Whoever's not written in that book is who gets thrown into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20:15. So the houses are all burned from gods to the kings to the nobles. Won't be any temptation to live in, in that city, uh, at least for a while. We have read of God's vengeance for the temple. Chapter 50, verse 28, chapter 51, verse 11. But was it for the burning and stealing or for the eventual mocking misuse of its implements in the book of Daniel? When they took them out uh, and, you know, used them uh, to, you know, while they're praising their own gods. Because, you know, uh, they, uh, you know, God has a separate account. And he's already said that he's, he's judging Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. 
not for the destruction of Jerusalem, which he, you know, sanctioned, but for his pride in doing so. Nebuzaradan must have had a large, well-equipped contingent of, of soldiers, probably the same ones who had built the siege works uh, in order to break down the city's walls. I mean, they, you know, they, they had some in, impressive walls themselves. And, of course, those, the rebuilding of those walls would be the main work in 70 years. Nehemiah comes back mainly to build the walls. And then after that, you can build the temple, etc. The city had been without spiritual walls for some time. Yeah, the, the physical walls are finally broken down, but they had been without spiritual walls for a while. And now, uh, verse 15, And the destitute of the people and the remnant of the people who are left in the city and those who are defecting, who have defected to the king of Babylon and the remnant of the multitude. So there's the categories of people. Nebuzaradan, chief of the executioners, has literally exposed, but it's a word that's usually used for deporting them. And... uh, and of the destitute of the land, Nebuzaradan, chief of the executioners, has left for vine dressers and for farmers. So there seems to be a difference then between the destitute of the people and the destitute of the land. Destitute is a really rare, rare word, just about five times in the whole Old Testament. Presumably, the destitute of the land lived off the land itself, you know, just barely made an existence. Had no stake in, in the city of Jerusalem, probably owned no land. Maybe... They were the, the, some of the servants who were temporary, temporarily released back in chapter 34. That the, uh, the people that were unrighteously keeping Hebrew slaves longer than their term of service, you know, let them, said, yeah, we should let them go. But then they were like, oh, who's going to, you know, do all this work? And so they immediately uh, retook them. So anyway, these destitute of the land are left to farm. If Nebuchadnezzar's army needed to cut through Judah again, then there would be some provisions for them or at least land that, you know, just hadn't turned to brambles. But the destitute of the people apparently were not farmers and would not fare well if left behind or maybe they had skills that were needed in Babylon. And so then all of these categories shipped off to Babylon uh, defectors, nondescript or uncategorized people. Again, they still had roots in or around Jerusalem. And so I think that's the main reason they weren't allowed to stay so that they wouldn't be tempted to immediately start rebuilding the city. Kids speak. Kids, what happened to almost all the Jews? Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon. You know, a long, long way away. It would have taken them weeks to, to get there. And they stayed there for 70 years. Only the young children and the children that were born in Babylon lived long enough to come back. Now, as we found, found out in Jeremiah 50, uh, 39 through 44, even these poor farmers that are left had imbibed enough of the Jewish spirit to continue to rebel against God. You know, again, these are the ones who would say, oh, just tell us whatever we're supposed to do and we'll do it. And then they didn't do it, even having seen the awful consequences of rebellion. So how does all this relate to Christ? Well, Christ was the covenant head of Israel, always desiring their good, wasn't he? When he wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers its chicks. 
And so it was in Jeremiah's day as well. A word for the walking wounded, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that says, tells us to uphold the strengthless. If your conscience is tender and you can only imagine God's justice disposing him against you, realize that this holy fear is exactly what Israel lacked. Jeremiah 6.15 talked about they don't know how, how to blush. Scripture is profitable for teaching, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, for conviction. Do I gauge God's judgment of sin as a positive dynamic in cleansing me from sin? So God is a judge of sin. That's why he won't allow sin to stay in me. He's going to do whatever it takes to get it out. And, you know, if I'm going to be with him, I'm going to be with him without sin eventually. Scripture is profitable for correction. I will recognize God's unfailing righteousness and my solid, desirable guarantee that I will one day be without sin. The fact that he doesn't tolerate it is my guarantee that I I won't have to put up with it anymore. And hopefully that's, you know, a a large desire. I desire holiness. Therefore, I, I desire sin not to be in me. And scripture is profitable for schooling in righteousness according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And so, let us pray. Purify me, you pure one, by the sight of you. 1 John 3.3 says, uh, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And therefore, it says we are are purified. Look at at 1 John 3.3. Look at, uh, look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Judgment begins at the house of God, meaning His people. This is first, first Peter 4, 7, 17. Judgment begins at the house of God, not the physical structure, at his people. In the Old Testament, God had a people with whom he made a covenant. His eternal mercies were manifested to them, but most of them did not enter into those mercies. In the New Testament, Christ established the promised new covenant. It is a covenant with the elect. But the structure of Christ's body still allows for unbelievers to meet with the elect in their gatherings. And they can even take those gatherings over and can become gatherings of the non-elect. The natural functioning of Christ's body is to expose unbelief through the word, just like right now. Convicting and correcting believers and converting some of the unbelieving present. Some unbelievers will always eventually work evil. This, too, is part of God's perfecting of his chosen ones. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So the bad people have to 
try and lead astray so that those who are with Christ can say no. But this is often a bridge too far that finally exposes the true colors of many who, when those who are trying to draw others away, are like, yeah, but the, that's, that includes my best friend. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not up for, you know, I'm, I'm going to find a way to redefine what they're doing or saying so that, you know, I don't have to separate from them. And that's what ends up showing the true colors of, of, of many. Again, just read your First John chapter 2. They went out from us because they were not of us. And so that number certainly that left certainly could have included those who simply were like, well, you guys are just being too judgmental to say that just because they don't believe, you know, Jesus is the Christ the same way that you, you say it, that they therefore do not belong to God. So, you know, I'm going to go with them. And that often de- decides the issue, being unwilling to separate from evil words and works. And let's pray. Lord God, hear our prayer and bless us, Lord, to receive your words. Your words are healing words. But we know that they are healing like the the surgeon's uh, scalpel first. And so we we pray that we would again receive uh, your conviction and see your intolerance of sin as a good thing. And be be glad that because of that, one day we will be without sin before you. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.